Support comes from Gather Pottery, hosting ceramicist Sarah Anderson teaching a weekend sgraffito workshop for all levels, May 18th and 19th at Gather Pottery in Interbay. Learn more at gatherpottery.com. Welcome to Mid-December. Welcome to KUOW's Year in Review from the stage at the Cornish Playhouse at Seattle Center in downtown Seattle. Yeah. I am your host, Bill Radke, and this year's theme is 2023, coming together or not. Have we come together at work? Have we come together politically, culturally, or not? I asked some of my KUOW colleagues to come together and jaw about this with me, with you. Please welcome KUOW's arts and culture reporter, Mike Davis. Hiya, Mike. Hey, Bill. Labor and economy reporter at KUOW. Hi, Monica Nicholsberg. Hi, Bill. KUOW politics and more editor, Catherine Catsmith. Hi, Kat. So, coming together or not? Some workers who were remote are coming back together at the office. Some are not. Monica Work life is a big part of your beat. How did the pandemic change what it means to work in the Seattle area? Well, it definitely changed how we feel about work. People Mm. changed their priorities. They changed industries. They made big life decisions, maybe moved away, and now are finding that they have to be back in the office. Um, but, and if you whether are, they want to be or not. Whether they want to be or not. And, you know, being remote, if you're an office worker, of course, that doesn't apply to all workers. But the ability to be remote allowed for more young parents to come into the workforce, people with disabilities. So it really changed the landscape. With the tussle over work downtown, is downtown Seattle dying? Oh, big one. Um, well, what, is, what does that mean? Is that a feeling? Is it something that's provable? Because what we know from the data is that foot traffic downtown is about half what it was before the pandemic. So when it feels like a ghost town down there, you're not imagining it. But if it means crime, even though crime is up really significantly across Seattle, it's actually down in the downtown area as a share of the total. So it's sort of an amorphous concept. I think Seattle is dying is a catchy way to describe it, but there's a lot going on. Monica mentioned foot traffic. What are some of the other reasons for seeing like less people? Like, why does it feel like a ghost town? Well, there's definitely fewer commuters, and having hybrid work can make it feel really empty because nobody's there at the same time, even though it seems like Wednesdays and Thursdays are are when people tend to come into work. But yeah, there's fewer people there, and when there's fewer eyes on the street, it can make instances of crime or people who are in crisis feel like everything that's happening because it's the only thing that you see and there's not really other folks around, folks who might be calling for help. So I think that it is, you know, it's not that it's not real. Feelings are real and feelings do matter. And you can tell someone, here's what the data says, but the experience, if you are downtown and if you don't feel safe or you don't feel like it is what it used to be, like that's a real thing too. What do you think is going to happen as far as work from home in 2024? I think I just seen a story. Was it Boeing that's saying they want all of their workers to come back? Is that a trend that you think we're going to see more of heading into next year? It's a good question. Yeah, so Boeing is saying five days a week, which like just sounds that wild, sounds like right? So much. That's so many days. Can you imagine we ever <laughs> went so into the days. office five days a week? How could you ever ask someone to do that? 
Um, <laughs> it's not even possible. Is that possible? I know. I know. It's, yeah, how would that even work? Yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah, the logistics are a nightmare. Um, and, and, you know, we are seeing this trend. Amazon's at three days a week. Starbucks is at three days a week. Some are feeling, you know, more aggressive about enforcing that than others. But there's pushback. There are employees who are really not happy about this. People who made decisions during the pandemic, like moving far away or, you know, they, their childcare arrangement is dependent on being home a couple of days a week, who are saying, you said this was here to stay, and I've proven to you that I can do my job this way. So what is the reason for making me come back? Monica, with more people coming back to the offices, more people coming back downtown, is our public transit system ready for that? <laughs> <laughs> I want to say no. <laughs> um, but, you know, public transit's sort of a chicken and egg, right, where it's like if, if ridership is down then there's not the funding to expand service. Service shuts down. If it's not reliable, you're not going to rely on it. More people are going to be in their cars. Um, so, you know, I, I think that it, it wasn't a situation that was working perfectly or flawlessly before the pandemic, and it's also one that hasn't been figured out now. When you say there's pushback from employees, how much is that pushback that hits their bottom line? Are people, how much are people quitting? How much are people getting fired if they refuse to come back? How much are companies just bailing on leases because we just don't plan to need office buildings anymore? It's a big question, but I'm kind of curious what happened in 2023, any inklings and in where we're going in 2024? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on the company. We saw some reports at Amazon, for example, of people being fired. But we've also heard of other, you know, sort of enforcement measures like being passed over for a promotion if you're not swiping your badge three days a week. Um, some companies have been giving more latitude, more flexibility, but I think you know part of that depends on how important it is for companies to maintain their headcount. We saw earlier this year in the tech industry there were tons and tons of layoffs, and it seems like the companies are trying to no longer do that, but I've certainly heard this, this feeling among employees at some companies that it's kind of a forced attrition thing. It's like, well, if you don't like it, leave. Monica, it feels, it feels like Seattle kind of found itself at the epicenter of this labor movement in our country. As we're hearing companies push to try to get workers to come back, do you think that workers will have the power to actually push back against that? Well, so far, labor power has been you know, kind of remarkable this year. We've had this really tight labor market since the pandemic, and that's allowed for this kind of revival in the labor movement. But that being said, it's still, it's still at an all-time low. It's sort of like it's been, you know. Um, that was terrible radio because I did a hand gesture. <laughs> for all our listeners down there, it's been going down for a long sure time. <laughs> to be clear. Uh, but, but, you know, it, that has been a, a huge story this year. We've seen the union movement at Starbucks. We've seen some tech workers even unionize, white-collar professions that we didn't really traditionally see union representation. And I'm curious if it's going to be something that can be maintained because there are, like, some little signs in the job market that it might not be quite as tight as it once was. It, it still is a really good time to be a worker, though. Speaking of unionization... I heard that the National Labor Relations Board, are they going to force Starbucks to just turn the lights back on in some C Seattle stores and reopen stores? <laughs> Not exactly. There was, they did file this complaint where they said Starbucks closed 23 stores, by, and that was an illegal union busting tactic. They did it because there was either union activity there or because they wanted to discourage other stores from unionizing. Starbucks obviously denies that. Uh, but in this complaint, they're saying the remedy we'd like for that is for these stores to be reopened and all the employees to be offered their jobs back. Very unclear if that's going to happen, but, 
you know, labor law in this country is just kind of toothless. And it seems like with this more aggressive National Labor Board that we're seeing, they're trying to find ways to actually discourage this kind of behavior because there's really no downside to companies doing it now. Something that's new to your beat, at least a new emphasis, is artificial intelligence. Um, Do we have any idea how AI is going to change how we do our jobs, whether we have jobs, you know, how our local economy works? Let me check my crystal ball. Uh, please. <laughs> um, I, don't... I can have a robot do that for you. Oh, oh, excellent. Making my job easy. Um, you know, I, I, haven't, I have a guess, but this is sort of like trying to predict, you know, Uber at the advent of the Internet. Like, it's like, where are we even, you know, what's our frame of reference? But that being said, I mean, I do think that what this year of generative AI showed us is that a lot of parts of our jobs that we didn't think could be automated could be automated. And I think parts of our jobs will be. My guess is that that'll create more of a demand for really high-skilled workers because somebody's got to supervise, got to oversee the AI, make sure it doesn't hallucinate and do something really wild. Mm. Um, And I think that could cause more inequality in our labor economy because you've got folks who are really, really skilled here at the top and then sort of this missing Very trained, very specialized. Yeah, exactly. And then this like kind of missing middle of skill level. But I do think you could also see a market for like artisanal coding and writing and graphic design. You know, something that's made by humans could become something that we place a premium on in the same way that in the Industrial Revolution, we saw like artisanal handmade goods became more valuable. Oh, yeah. Uh, Monica, I have a question for you. Uh, you know, in the past year, since AI has sort of you know burst into everyone's consciousness and it's in the zeitgeist, and we're all talking about it, what do you think is the biggest thing we're all getting wrong when we talk about AI, when we think about AI, when we fight about AI? Hmm. Well, I think that it feels like this is the year that artificial intelligence happened. You know, that all of a sudden, like the lights were turned on, and we realized that these machines could do these things that are really incredible that we didn't think they could do, like make up a poem in, you know, uh, Shakespearean English. Because of ChatGPT. Because of ChatGPT. But the truth is, this was just sort of a, a model that showed us what's been in development and what's been incorporated into the products we use every day for a long time. You know, I think the people who make these things would say, like, artificial intelligence is just how your phone works. It's just how your computer works. And so I think when we, when we talk about our fears, I think the things that we're afraid of, we might be a little bit over-anxious about, and the things that we're cavalier about, we might want to be a little more concerned about. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to cling to your idea of artisanal demand for, what's, for what seems human. We're making artisanal radio right now. That's where I'm going. We have human beings in here. <laughs> We're doing year in review, as we do every year. I've got KUOW's Cat Smith, Mike Davis, Monica Nicholsberg. We've been talking about the health of Seattle in one way. So let's zoom in now on one particular neighborhood, the Chinatown International District specifically an anchor of that neighborhood, the Wing Luke Museum of the Asian Pacific American Experience. Please welcome the executive director of the Wing Luke, Joelle Barakiel Tan. Joelle. Welcome. Magandang gabi. Thank you so much for coming, Joelle. Um, we, you know, I visited you the other day at Wing Luke, and we talked about 2023 in a lot of ways, and I saw some, some cool stuff that maybe we can tell people about, too. Well, one of the first things you brought up was 
anti-Asian American attacks, including one at Wing Luke. Will you tell us what happened, for those who don't know, on September 14th? Certainly. Um, I think some folks might know that on September 14th, we experienced uh, a hate crime where um, uh, um, a white man, Craig Milne, um, uh, took out nine out of our ten windows of our historic building with a sledgehammer. Uh, he, he wanted to do it um, because, the, according to him, the Chinese ruined his life. And um, we were able to stop it, but he wanted to make uh, very clear that he was waiting for the police because he wanted to be arrested and he wanted to make a public statement about how this has to stop. So it was a, it was a big moment that really um, changed uh, individually all of our lives, but the, but the, the life of the organ, or at least the way the organization in the neighborhood sees itself has really changed forever since that, right? Because I think... That, in many ways, uh, marks uh, an important moment around anti-Asian hate, where we saw an acceleration of that hate um, happening at uh, the beginning of the quarantine, particularly fueled by uh, the former president's and, and government kind of um, anti-Chinese, anti-Asian statements. But there's an emboldening, an accelerating, because we've just seen recently uh, the home invasions happening for the elderly, and now this thing at the Wing Luke Museum, there's a, there's a line that's being crossed, and a, a kind of crossing into not only the domestic threshold, right, but it's also moving into the institutional ones. Um, Joel, you, you spoke about that, and I, I remember when it happened, and you know, there was a lot of coverage about what happened and, and why it happened, and you mentioned the gentleman by name, but I'm very curious to hear you speak about what happened after, about how the community rallied, how the community came together. And in that moment, what did you learn about the community that you're a part of? Well, that night in particular, it, it, didn't, it, didn't, it was immediate. Right? That was, if I could bring you there that night, it was the night of the Beyonce concert. So it was, the neighborhood was already in a grip. It was around a little about 5.15. We had folks inside the museum and, and then this thing happened, right? But immediately, you, um, you saw not only uh, staff, but our neighbors, for, you know, former staff. You know, as soon as it happened, there was like this incredible flurry of activity, including people texting. Without um, being asked, people started picking up brooms and just started sweeping. Uh, there was a group of folks who were just around um, the, the, this guy who was just kind of ranting and it was just in, in some ways I almost wish I had a painting of a moment because this choreography of, of love um, was really happening and then you had all of the silver garb Beyonce folks just <laughs> looking in right and, and doing all this so it was this um, complete scene and what was incredible about it just in that hour we were waiting for uh, 911 response was that you saw community really come together. I had like the former executive directors texting me. He's saying that Ron Chu, who's like texting other people, um, Suru for solidarity um, uh, leaders were there, and we were uh, <laughs> Shikuma, who's who's a, a major leader in, in in not only our community but for Suru. The guy hadn't even been picked up yet, and he was already emailing Mayor Harold. Like at the alley. So this is, that is the Chinatown International District character in spirit. 
So I think um, we definitely want to make sure folks aren't focused on on the hurt that happens for us, but truly um, want uh, we want folks to know and communicate um, how truly innate our wellness is, how truly innate our joy is, because that is that neighborhood. <laughs> Um, Joelle, you were talking about 911 response times. I think as a group, we've been talking about um, how people feel about policing and who wants more police in their neighborhoods and who doesn't want more police in their neighborhoods. And it's a complicated question for people. And I was wondering if you, where do you fall? You know, I, I, I really appreciate the earlier conversations because um, around fear, right, what we do around that. And I think we are definitely in a COVID post-reconstruction moment, right? And as we know, not everybody makes it through reconstruction but it, it, it's a it's a historic moment so all that to say is police response is just a slice of 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 the issue at least the way i'm seeing it we're seeing it because i think the neighborhood itself has its own definition of public safety and so for us i mean let's go back to to that moment september 14th when the this terror act really wanted to had an intention to, to make a public statement. And at the heart, I intuited, a lot of us intuited immediately that he was trying to call in other goons. Like, this is a moment where he thought he was going to call in the Joker and the Riddler and all of that. We're like, no, no, that's not going to happen. And so instead, we, 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 we led with messaging um, as a response to that hate of saying, if you want public safety... Um, the thing we have within our control is what we can do is come home. If you are concerned about the public safety of that historic neighborhood, the nation's only pan-Asian, Pacific Islander, black, indigenous, people of color neighborhood, it is unusual, then you will come. And you will come more often. You will come regularly. Because truly, that presence is what creates safety, to quote Dr. Gabor Mate, you know, safety isn't the absence of threat, but the presence of connection. And the CID historically has that in spades, but COVID complicated that. But I think um, it's working where we're seeing more folks coming into the neighborhood, right? Um, and we're blessed to, to buck the trend in most museums and arts institutions that are seeing a decline we're not seeing a decline, right? And, and what, what we're hoping is happening is that folks are coming into the museum because they're getting something that, they're, that they can't get anywhere else, right? And I think that one of the things that you may or may not know about the Wing Luke Museum is that the way we, we create uh, programs, the way we create exhibitions and public programs isn't with an expert curator. We, we take the expertise from the community and we use a community organizing model, so there's already a group ownership of what that program is going to be. Well, doing that over and over again, right, creates that community, that presentness that we need more right now. But now having said that, I think it's important that we have that agency and that we call our folks home and call, like, our new friends to come and create public safety. I am hopeful about Amy Smith, Chief Amy Smith, and, and the new care, the new kind of increased investment in the care team, 
and particularly the ways that um, our, our local infrastructure is starting to tailor and starting to get more sophisticated and starting to adapt. You're talking about the non-police civilian exactly. crisis care responders. The third public safety, where you have the police, you have fire, and then you have the care team that deals with uh, more mental health, uh, different ways of engaging violence prevention, right? Um, lower acuity. So it's not like one or the other. You know, it's, it's, there's something, there's uh, more complexity to it because certainly the, the challenges around public safety is complex. I want to make sure we tell folks about some of what's at Wing Luke, if they don't already know it. But I love the, uh, the No One Lives Here, um, yeah. if I got the title right, the sort of the history of displacement and the CID. But uh, a, a new exhibit I yeah. hadn't seen before is very radio-friendly. It's called Soundcheck. <laughs> and I will just give one example. I saw one of the plaques um, of text in this exhibit said that when you talk to... Um, Asian American Pacific Islander Native Hawaiian people musicians the word that keeps coming up is loneliness will you tell us why that is what that means well um, I, in a recent national study I believe that Spotify conducted um, and when they did they, um, they asked a lot of questions about uh, music and musicians around the country we found that Asian Americans only represent uh, represent only five percent of American musicians. The other the other interesting thing, and where that juxt you know the other point that uh, I think we need to know is that Asian Americans are the only group of folks that don't have a specific musical genre connected to it. Right. So in that way, there's a way that you don't get niched into something, but you also have given the platform incredible breadth. And you can do Asian American death metal to Asian American salsa, right? Yeah, they don't get stuck into a salsa they don't get stuck into or it. an R&B expectation. But even with the idea that this, this is kind of historically underrepresented uh, kind of fact about Asian Americans and Pacific Islander Americans in the media, we're in a moment also and yes, that's true. And yes, also, we're seeing this incredible groundswell, a new awareness about that dearth, that, about that lack, about that gap. And more and more, every, someone said everything everywhere all at once. That was a high point. And not just in music, right? We're seeing it across different sectors, politics, um, um, uh, TV, comedy, Joe Coy, Olivia Rodrigo, Jason Jones, right? This is that moment where... That exhibition in and of itself, um, because we, we engaged our community organizing process, is rich in complexity, right? In the ways that you could say loneliness, um, it will be complicated by the joy you will feel just being in that space where we've got like an installation uh, that looks like a teenage bedroom, yeah. right? Because we were... We were, were um, BTS it was, bedspread. BTS bedspread, it's like where um, music plays in our daily lives, right? All the way to this... But isn't there like, um, I don't know, Fleetwood Mac on the wall? And, yeah. And, right, it's, it's, it's right. all over the place, of course. So it's this, um, this is incredible melange, 
right? Of of all the so don't expect to just see all Pacific Islanders and Asian Americans because we're not expecting that. We're seeing how it's woven into our current culture and reality now. But moreover, I want to tie it back to September 14th. Um, ironically, this this show goes through September 14th, 2024. 20, uh, so right. we'll see you all there, right? <laughs> but here's the thing. I think um, starting the year with this being one of our big exhibitions is important. Because we, um, I don't know about you, but I, um, I've got some feelings around November 3rd, 2024, right? And we're seeing, um, I, I think what we're seeing in terms of the emboldening and accelerating of violence toward marginalized peoples has to do not only with that, but just this increasing trend um, and emboldening of supremacist culture. So with all of that heaviness, we need something else to remind us of our humanity, and karaoke will do that. Yes. <laughs> right? I sat with the headsets and watched karaoke video after karaoke video. Right. It's great. And so with that, we also have in the karaoke section, if you are a Seattle native or know even anything or, or care anything about uh, people of color organizing, Uncle Bob Santos is at the mic. Yeah. So you're going to want to be at that mic, right? <laughs> yeah, I saw Uncle Bob do his one-man show. There you go. Yeah. Um, I'm that old, and I've been enjoying, <laughs> enjoying Seattle for that long. You are a relative newcomer, uh, Joelle, a, uh, a poet. And, um, and a community pillar already. And I just love that you came to KUOW's year in review. Thank you so much. Salamat. Salamat. From Wing Link Museum, Joelle Baraki Altan. Thank you, Joelle. You're listening to the year in review on KUOW. I'm Bill Radke. I'm here with KUOW journalists, Kat Smith, Mike Davis, Monica Nicholsberg. Let's turn to politics editor. We're going to focus on your, the politics part of your job, Kat Smith. This year, Washington voters had their say, and they rose up in mighty numbers. Mighty low numbers. 37% voter turnout. I think it was the lowest in state history. If that, Washington, if that was a test, we failed. We really failed. So what did those very few voters say with their failure of a mighty thunderous voice <laughs> well the few who turned out uh here in seattle they they certainly did not say defund the police um we mm-hmm. we just elected uh, a bunch of moderate candidates to the city council this year many of them ran on public safety hiring more cops um so you know the majority of the city council is now more centrist than it's been in years it's almost all new people too and most of them are very tightly aligned with mayor bruce harrell he also wants to put more cops on the streets he wants to crack down on on things like visible homelessness, on public drug use. So this is, these are things that the city administration is now very aligned on. Um, and it's a shift. This looks like, to me, it looks like a direct response, response to the uh, super progressive city council that was elected during the last big election. Um, and I think it's also a response to you know, ultra progressives who used to be on the council, like Shama Sawan, who's stepping down this month. So it looks like, to me, it looks like the city is taking a big swing toward the center. Can you call it a big, a big swing or a big, uh, or a referendum when voter turnout is so low? I know. Can we, can we <laughs> say mean, anything about what the voters want? 
Well, and it's also, it's also, it's Seattle, so we're talking about shades of blue here. So center in Seattle is still pretty progressive, <laughs> so we're not talking about, like, we don't have a bunch of MAGA candidates on the city council, certainly. I think in, in most other states in the country, I think people would hear us say, this is a centrist council, and they would look at us like, we're, we're nuts. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's all relative. Well, let's talk about the, uh, you mentioned drugs. That was a, a, a concrete development in 2023 mm-hmm. we moved from this state felony law and that's mm-hmm. gone and what's going to happen in seattle and it really helped shake the council up will you just tell folks who don't know what happened with the approach to legal approach to drugs in this town yeah um so the the state government passed a new drug law like you said they tossed out the felt the state tossed out its felony drug law a couple years ago and this year the state and then ultimately seattle followed suit um, they made drug possession a gross misdemeanor. Now, in Seattle, we had to amend our municipal code because we had never prosecuted drug cases at that low level like that before. So basically what, what the law does is it, um, if somebody is smoking fentanyl like on a street corner or at a bus stop, the Seattle police can arrest those people and they could go to jail and they could be prosecuted for a gross misdemeanor. So to me, I mean, this is part of this, this crackdown on, on visible problems. Some of the most, you know, when you're walking around the street, it's very easy to spot, you know, a homeless encampment or somebody who's doing drugs in public. These are very like, like low-hanging fruit things to tackle. Huge priority for the city in 2024. And so um, I think one of the things that I'm curious about is that if, you're, if the city is super focused on these very highly visible, low-hanging fruit problems, are we really tackling the harder-to-spot things, the behind-the-scenes things, the really in-the-weeds stuff? And I think to look at that, I think we need to look at how the drug law has functioned so far. It's been um, it, you know, very controversial. It took a while to get passed at the city council, and it had a big impact on the elections. Um, but it's been in place for uh, two months now. So about 50 people have been arrested so far. Only about a dozen of them have gone to jail. Those were people who had uh, outstanding warrants and stuff like that. The rest of them, about 33 of them, were referred to uh, drug treatment and services. You know, you're supposed to be hooked up with a, a social worker, and they help you set you know, life goals, like you know, finding stable housing or finding work, you know, things to change your life. Whatever, if drug treatment is the right thing for you, maybe that's what, that's what you do. But these are really difficult, difficult things to solve. It takes a long time for someone to go through that system. It take about a year for someone to stabilize. So, you know, the problem that I'm anticipating is that that system was already overstretched before this drug law. It does not have the capacity to take in all of these new people. It didn't in the past. It doesn't now. And it's not going to in 2024. So my big concern is like, you can't really see that. You know, if, if the city council and the mayor, their big priority is just pushing drug users off the street where you can't see them, we don't really know how that progress is going to go. You mentioned that a lot of the candidates ran on this idea of adding more cops. Um, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's something that we're hearing a lot in the community, that something has to be done. We need more police. It seems like there's a lot more agreement on that than there used to be among elected officials. Do you like, have a sense for when a city has done that, when it's really beefed up its police department, has it reduced crime? Or, you know, I know that the homicide rate is is at an all-time high, I think, in Seattle. Is that something that there's data that shows that adding more police could bring down? It's squishy. Um, so our, our homicide rate is, is not 
like at a historic high, our number of homicides oh. are, it's, it's, you know, it's complicated. Number of statistics, <laughs> statistics, they're all kind of fungible. Um, homicides are super high. The goal for the city is they want to hire hundreds more cops. I think the problem is that we've been losing cops as a city faster than we can hire them. So the mayor and this new council, they want to hire a certain set number of cops. Do they have a goal to reduce crime? <laughs> no, no? <laughs> there's, not like, there's not like a number, you know? I think it's, it's hard to know if more cops on the streets is going to bring a number like homicides down. That's, homicides are extremely complex. And in Seattle, I did a story on the homicide number hitting this, this record high a couple weeks ago. And what I learned was that like, like 80% of them so far have been gun deaths, majority gun homicides. And uh, tackling gun violence is really, really complicated. It's multifaceted. It has to do... You know, in America, there's more guns than people. So it's kind of bigger than Seattle. Are more Seattle cops on the streets going to take care of that problem? Probably not. But it might make people feel safer. Everyone should feel safe in their own city. So it's, it's very, very complicated. As these races were playing out, there were some races where, you know, as you mentioned, Seattle's like different shades of blue. Um, when I think of, like, uh, Joy and Alex, for example, like, it seemed like public safety was the only place where they disagreed. Everything else felt like it was in alignment. They ran in District 3. Right. Um, Talking about a, two city council candidates. Yes, yeah. yes. Joy Hollingsworth and... Um, Alex Hudson? Yes, Alex, Alex Hudson. Hudson, yeah. Yes. And District 3 is the, the, central, the central area. Yes, absolutely. It was uh, Shama Swan's old district. But my question is, I mean, whether or not more police will work, I guess we'll see. And, and you spoke to that. But my question is, how? Because hiring police seems like a, a problem for me- major metropolitan areas throughout our country, not just Seattle. And Seattle already has all of these incentives, like hiring more cops is something that we've been trying to do for a long time. So how are we even going to do that? And if we can't, what is the answer going to be to make our streets safer? If we can figure that out, I think we will be, all of us, the next mayor of Seattle. <laughs> I don't know. I would love it's to know It's a rare four-person mayoral <laughs> occupancy, but it's, it's been we done. We will share the office. Yes, yeah. You don't vote for us, right? <laughs> you know, public safety was, like, one of the top issues, if not the top issue, in the city council elections. And I think, you know, not, not that many people voted, relatively speaking, but it looks like people want more cops. They want what the mayor is selling. They want what these candidates are selling. Well, that's the reason why I ask. I think it's, it's loud and clear that communities throughout Seattle want more safety. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not even like it, it used to feel like it was like the South End. No, it's not. It's also the CD. We have kids getting robbed after school in right. the North End. This is a citywide issue. But from my perspective, and I, I'm the arts guy, but listening to the, the city council races, it seemed like the only answers being put before us was hire more cops. So if that's the only solution that these folks who just got voted in have, and we know that they, we haven't been able to do that before, are we just doomed? Are we here at the end of the year to tell everyone that we are doomed? <laughs> like, like, there has to be- well, I mean, there will always be another election, right? It, and it's, it's Washington State. We have another election every, like, four months. <laughs> but, I mean, there, there will be another city council election, and we can, we can hold these folks accountable. We said that y'all wanted to hire these cops because there were real safety, public safety concerns, and I think it's, it's going to be our job to follow through on that, to really watch the stats, watch how many cops they hire, and see, like, what actually gets done. Were these just glitzy promises made on the campaign trail? Is there really going to be an impact? I think it's, it's going to be our job to, 
Well, that, it, it'll, be, that. it'll be 37% of our jobs, but oh. hopefully, <laughs> hopefully more, hopefully, hopefully it'll be higher. of us that we're paying attention. <laughs> I chose our theme for this year, coming together or not. My original one was 2023, we're doomed, but I, um, <laughs> I could have gone with that. Let's just, I want to end this topic or this segment with politics at a higher level. A campaign for governor began this year. Can we assume it'll be another Democrat? <laughs> well, you know, Washington State. I don't think we've had a Republican uh, as a governor since 1985. So usually it's a safe bet. It'll be a Democrat. But this year might be different. Next year might be different. There is a Republican running who has got some heat. Um, his name, you might recognize his name. His name is Dave Reichert. He was a congressman mm-hmm. in Washington. <laughs> some of you know him. <laughs> Uh, He stepped down before the pandemic after seven terms in D.C. And I was curious, you know, Bob Ferguson, our current attorney general, is running. He's a Democratic frontrunner. And I wanted to know, we're a year out. It's it's a long time, you know. How is Riker doing? How does he stack up against Ferguson? So I looked at a poll from the Northwest Progressive Institute, and I was very surprised to learn that Riker is polling better than Ferguson right now. Mm -hmm. We've got a year. We've got a year. (laughs) You're listening to KUOW's Year in Review. We've got KUOW's Cat Smith, Mike Davis, and Monica Nicholsberg talking over the big events of the year with special guests. Speaking of which, we're going to have a special guest when we return to the Cornish Playhouse at Seattle Center. The 2023 Husky football team is undefeated. By the way, that hoot that hoot and holler was from a packed house here at the Cornish Playhouse at Seattle Center. And if we're touching on the big events of 2023, we got to talk about being ranked number two in the USA. I mean, right? Go dogs. I'm a modder here myself. All perfect, right? Let's keep Northwest College sports just the way it is. <laughs> I think you know where I'm going. Our next guest is one of my favorite writers because he captures both the delight and the absurdity of sports. Please welcome, from Post Alley and Books and Columns, Art Teal. Art, please come on up. Art, this show has been about coming together. This segment is called Falling Apart because we're talking about the Pacific 12, the Pac-12 conference. For, what, a century, the UW's been at a competitive family with Northwest schools like Wazoo, Oregon, down to Stanford and UCLA. But starting next year, most of those schools will be in a conference with Maryland and Penn State. Why, Art? Why is this happening? The issue is, of course, as it always is in sports, money. And there is more to be had if they realign and reformat college sports. But the thing that they did and that what they've done is they've finally abandoned amateurism, which is something that happened in their country about 100 years ago, and it just missed college sports by about a century. Mm -hmm. So what they've done is to start a disassembly of the traditional college sports model because amateurism has uh, been deemed illegal 
all the way up to the Supreme Court. College so now, athletes don't have to work for free. They can now get paid. Yes. And so all of that is transforming the, uh, the sport, especially college football, which is the driver of all economic engines in college sports. So what we're seeing here, I think, right now is a transition to a completely professionalized game that will professionalized be... Professionalized college sports. Yes. Yes. What, would that, what sense would that make? Whether it's good or bad, it's just weird, isn't it? Like, um, yeah, how would, that, how would this Well, I work? thought it was weird that they were getting away with this for 100 years with unpaid labor. Yes, agreed. <laughs> so... And so, and so what I think is going to happen, and this is the, the big picture for several years, maybe 10 years down the road, but the complete professionalization of college sports will be where the schools basically make the athletic department an entertainment division of the enterprise, detach it completely from the academic mission, which it already almost is anyway, and basically rent to the sports teams the university name, the mascots, the colors, and the season ticket holder list base. And they will then, from the money they receive, get enough, of, get enough money to pay for all the non-revenue sports in the athletic department. Because I do think the, uh, the revenue stream is sufficiently great at the college level that if you create a new format and dedicate all the money to the entire university athletic department, you work out all the issues you have with Title IX to make sure that women get an equal share of the revenue. And this idea is not that far away because just last week, the NCAA president sent a letter to all the uh, Power Five conferences saying he has a plan whose basis is to try to reward every college athlete revenue sport, non-revenue sport, male, female, with a minimum of $30,000 a year as a stipend for their participation. And that's the minimum. They could get more depending on their success and the profile they have in the community. So the upshot is that this is going to be worth the beginning of a transformation here uh, that I think the TV networks are dictating. And what they want is to sort of come close to emulate the excitement that the men's college basketball tournament, March Madness, generates uh, every year. So they're going to have a playoff field of perhaps 24 or 36 or 48 teams playing four and six playoff games, sort of like the March Madness bracket. And I think that's their agenda. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to acknowledge it, but they want that long frenzy of excitement against with branded teams as they call them now Ohio State Notre Dame Michigan Washington, Washington Oregon yeah and that agenda is a big reason why Washington and Oregon in August jumped from the Pac 12 to the Big 10 because the big money follows the big schools in the in the proposed model who is responsible for actually paying the players? Would that be the teams or would it be the universities? And if it's a university, does that make the players now state employees in the case of UW? Well, that's one of the issues that the, the, the NCAA is trying to get ahead of is uh, making these players employees. They don't want that because they don't want players to have 
like protections with unions and you know be uh, <laughs> governed by the uh, you know rules of the workplace. Monica, you'll be covering sports very soon. Yeah. Yes, yes, I know. My ears pricked up. Yeah. <laughs> so that is what the uh, uh, they're trying to get to with this proposal is to uh, take the money out of what's going on right now. It's called name, image, and likeness (NIL). This is private money coming from boosters, companies who are supposed to have no affiliation with the university exactly, but somehow managed to get all this money. Michael Penix, the quarterback here, is uh, I'm certain is getting over a million dollars this year to really? play, uh, for, play for the Huskies. And I think uh, the Huskies got a deal compared to what other uh, teams are playing uh, paying their coaches, and I say teams, it's the private boosters and all the other privateers, buccaneers, charlatans, scoundrels, and rogues that are <laughs> populating the college sports scene. I think this is the agenda that they're going to have, is that we, if the colleges retake control of that money and direct it through their channels, they'll have a workaround towards being part of a, uh, or having to deal with the labor union to try to get a third and 12 uh, completed on the field. So I think that's probably going to be uh, the ultimate compromise, but there are many lawsuits to go before that happens. <laughs> many lawsuits before we sleep. So is Wazoo just going to, well, forget about it. it, just drop sports? Eastern Washington, drop sports? Uh, and will all of this be more fun for Husky fans or less? <laughs> well, I, th that's really the unknown. What happens to Oregon State, Washington State, and other schools who are having this budget problem? Because uh, WSU is running an annual athletic department deficit of more than $10 million a year already yeah. when the system is supposed to be there to help them. So they're going to have to, uh, I think Washington State and Oregon State are going to have an affiliation with the Mountain West Conference. They're going to be able to um, have their uh, full slate of games, but it won't be as prestigious and it won't be as attractive to the TV networks. And I don't know really what the answer is for the TV networks to help sustain not only Washington State and Oregon State, but a lot of the other schools. But really everyone who's running a full uh, program where you've got 12, 14, 16, 20 sports, uh, they're running deficits now. And so uh, it's going to be, I think, even worse if all the money is funneled up the chain instead of down. I, I can't get my mind around, are, do athletes have to go to class and pass finals if they're really just renting, uh, renting the, 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 the gig, the, the right. rig from their school? No, I, uh, I think it'll always be optional. Okay, uh, as it always has as been. As it always has been, to go to class, uh, a student athlete. But really, they're going to be, uh, they'll have to register as students, and they will be probably have to be a license to be part of the entertainment division of the university. Yep. And if they have the time management skills to take classes, they will be able to take classes free. And so those who want can, those who don't want won't have to. And so attendance and grades will no longer be mandatory, and that's why it's a complete separation of the athletic department from the mission statement of the university. Art Teal, I, I told you this in the green room, uh, you were, you, you were the, the greatest uh, sports columnist uh, 
back when I was reading the PI, and I just, as I said, and I said at the beginning of this, the way you can capture what's great, what's amazing about sports, and what is truly weird and absurd um, is a gift. Uh, I love to see you. Thanks for coming out. Thanks for having me. Art Teal, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to be right back. We've got a hot crowd where we, we are ready for more year in review in just a moment from the Cornish Playhouse at Seattle Center. Our theme was, was going to be We're Doomed, but I went with Coming Together. Uh, one way we do that is we come together through the arts and culture. Mike Davis, we were talking, we've been talking about people going back to the office. What about the arts, the theater, etc.? Are we, are we coming back together again? I mean, looking out here, it looks like people are coming together again, Bill. No. I would say that in art, we're seeing two things right now at the same time. Big art is, is great, right? Like, there were enough Swifties at Lumen Field to register an earthquake, yeah. like, right? So people are coming back. I think that smaller art, right, the, the local institutions, folks like Wing Luke, who we need to be in our communities. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. No, but, but really, like, those are, those are the organizations that have not made it back to pre-pandemic numbers. But the good news is... 2023 was better than 2022. And what is, what's exciting you about, about that, about covering that, uh, the way we're coming together and telling stories and entertaining? What should we know about 2023? I think that we should know that art is here and people are telling stories again. I feel like in a lot of ways, I cover the same things that they cover. I just cover these things through a lens of culture. So, you know, if you went to the act theater and you saw Cambodian rock band this year, um, right? Like that, that, that was a story about Cambodian genocide. So we talked about genocide. Um, there was a, a play about transracial and international adoption that happened this year that taught me that you can adopt a baby in our country through Facebook Messenger. Who knew, wow. right? Like, that's a real thing that happens. And, you know, we talked about that through art. I've covered abortion through art. I've covered violence, like all the same things. And, and it's great that we have this thriving art scene so that all of these conversations can be had. What do you think is keeping uh, the arts from rebounding or thriving as much as it could locally? <laughs> That's a, that's a great question. I think the economy plays a role. Um, just for a quick example, I have a family of four. We're going to go see Wonka at SIF Cinerama. That's what I call it. Uh, at, the SIF, at the SIF Cinerama. But, but Bill, uh, those, those four tickets, that was 70 bucks. <laughs> that was 70 bucks. And that's before the chocolate popcorn, right? So <laughs> if it costs $100 to see... Well, you are someone who's not used to having to pay for your ticket. That's probably why I'm complaining. That's why I'm complaining. But no, but I think that that, that does play a role. I think the good news is that people are still showing up and people are still supporting the arts. I go, I'm in theaters, I'm in um, museums, I'm in all of these types of spaces and there are people there, so there's hope. Also, uh, 
finally we're seeing like new levels of government support, which is crazy, which is great. Um, so when I mentioned SIF downtown, for example, uh, the Seattle City Council and the King County Council both put up about a million dollars to make that happen. The, the doors open levy in King County, which was passed unanimously, that's going to put almost $800 million into the arts over the next seven years. That's, that's, that's amazing, right? Like, so the arts, will, the arts will be here. What does that mean for an ordinary person? Like, if, you know, when my kids are in school, does that mean they're going to have access to more classes or, or stuff won't be shut down like we've been seeing? You know, we've been seeing, like, jazz band go away at certain schools and a lot of, uh, it seems like, struggle to keep the arts alive. Excellent question. So first of all, that levy is for arts, science, and cultural heritage. So that means we will have zoos, we will have aquariums, the Pacific Science Center, all of those institutions are included. But also, it goes to organizations that actually provide those arts instructors. So that jazz program doesn't have to die because we could pay for that jazz instructor. And it goes towards before school, after school, and during school programs. So the arts will have a way to come back into schools. Mike, what is it that you, maybe it's just an amazing work of art in 2023 or something that you know about is rumbling down the tracks. What do you want to share with us? Uh, would you rather have a look back or something you could see tomorrow? Oh. I could do either. Cra- tomorrow? Ask, ask the crowd. <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> uh, I'm going to be honest. I'm a, I will go with a, with a, a classic. Like, what is, what is Christmas without a little bah humbug? I love Scrooge. Uh, Yes, a a Christmas carol at the Act Theater. It's just, you know, it's just a slice of tradition. I went, I loved it, and I would suggest it for others. And it's in the round, so the the ballet of that is part of the fun. Yes, yes, things are dropping down from the sky. They're walking through the aisles and talking to people. It's a great experience. Uh, Mike Davis, I keep having you up here with me because um, it's just fun to do, and I love what you do, and I love how you help me understand it. And when you and Kim tell me what's going on, I've got my pen and pencil or I've got my notes app out because I want to know what's happening. Thanks for everything you do all year long. Thanks for having me, Bill. You know, another piece of art and culture that came along in 2023 that is a delight happens to be a KUOW podcast, a brand new podcast called Text Me Back. Text Me Back, Megan. Any fans here of Text Me Back on KUOW? Megan Hatcher Mays uh, is there and, and brings the, the, some public policy uh, knowledge from Washington, D.C., but mostly she brings best friend history and love with our next guest, one of our favorite writers and entertainers and thinkers, uh, you know, you know Lindy West from Shrill and so many other works. We please welcome Lindy West up to our stage. Where's Lindy? Oh, Lindy West, it's a Hello. good day. It's a good year when I get to see you. Thank you oh. for coming. Thank you for having me. Text me back. One yes. of the, uh, uh, we can talk about many of the delights of the show. One is, and you just revel in it, is that you, you and, and Megan, you're bestie from Garfield High School. Yes, like, indeed. Class of 2000. 
What's go that? Bulldogs. Class of 2000, go Bulldogs. Sorry. <laughs> go Bulldogs. Uh, uh, voted funniest in your class. Yes. Yeah, you and Megan. So it's like, I can't believe we get to do this vibe. And, and the vibe I get from listeners who's, you know, will come on or whose letters you read is, I can't believe I get to listen to this. Like, Aww. they're so delighted that they get to hear this. Um, so what, is, what, why do you, what do you think that's about? Why do you think people are get, get over the moon to hear two people who know each other so well? That sounds kind of insider. I know. I mean, I worry about that a little bit. I don't want, I don't want people to feel excluded from our clique. I want them to feel um, intimidated by how cool we are and <laughs> to sort of be um, mesmerized, hoping to figure out our secret. Um, no, that's not true. I think that um, Megan and I have been best friends since high school, and we... Uh, I always... I've said this in every interview about the show, but from day one, I was like, this person is a star... She's the funniest person I've ever met in my life. She's so smart. And then uh, I, we used to sit in her basement on Queen Anne Hill and talk about, what if we could have a radio show? Like, in 1999, we were sitting there being like, thinking of segments for our radio show. Um, and I think, you know, I have other best friends who I love in each one in a perfect, unique way. But there's Which something about... up on your, on your show. Like, you I know. know. Dude, I felt like, are you hearing from other best friends who are saying, hey... Bill, I am. <laughs> and it's very stressful. I do not like hurting people's feelings. Um, and all of my best friends are perfect in their own way. Megan and I have a performative chemistry yes, that is um, disordered. And I, like, I don't know where it came from, but we can't be stopped. And um, as long as we're just doing bits any, you know, all the time anyway, so we might as well do it into a microphone and become famous and get accolades, which is really what we're doing it for. Just Megan and I are addicted to accolades. We're refreshing the app all the time to see if we have any, any new accolades in the reviews. That is another thing I dug just about like in the latest episode. Yeah, that's a theme is you are so um, upfront with how much you want the affirmation and how much like if it's one person who didn't like it, you need to know why. I'm just dying to know. I mean, I don't think I've ever made something before that everyone liked. And so far, we only have one one-star review, and all the other ones are good. And so, um, I don't know, there's something very um, peaceful, and I, I just I feel like I finally, I finally found it. I cracked it. I figured out how to make something that no one hates. <laughs> and it turns out... fly in the suit. <laughs> that one Except for that one person. But maybe it was a typo. You know, right. could have been like a butt dial. That's what I'm going to assume. Unless you're here and you want to say, let me know, please. Yeah, let's work it a, out. I have a question for you. Uh, I am a fan of the pod. <gasps> accolade, accolade for you. Yes. Um, <laughs> I have a question, very, very serious question for you. Yes. Um, a couple of weeks ago, you were talking about, is it your dog bullying Megan or Megan's dog bullying yeah. you? Who is the dog bullying currently? I have to know. Thank you for asking. I am the one being bullied. <laughs> By Megan's dog. <laughs> Megan has like a four pound Pomeranian named Brenda who <laughs> despises me. I've never done anything to Brenda. Um, Brenda is so cute. And the second I walked into that house, um, Brenda was like, rah, 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 like just screaming at me like I was a monster. Um, and really, I think maybe Brenda's the monster and she should think about that. Um, <laughs> My dog is an angel and not a bully. Um, but yeah, Brenda's really cute and 
maybe Brenda left us that one star review. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Solved it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> well, okay, so I do want to I want to talk about 2023 from your point of view, but um, I, the last question I have about that, that that maybe some audience members do is uh, KUOW news journalism. Why is why are you doing? Why is KUOW doing a podcast where? Uh, Gar- Garfield Bulldog Besties Kibitz. You Bill. just asked her why she's here? <laughs> <laughs> why are you here? Yeah. Bill, I have no idea. I don't know. Uh, no, I mean, we're just really funny and charismatic, yes. and we tricked them. Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, we came in with a pitch, and we were like, we're going to dissect the news, because Megan's literally a lawyer. She's She worked, uh, you know... Uh, on Capitol Hill, like the DC kind. She worked for a congresswoman and she um, is very smart and knows real information. And so we were like, yeah, we're going to do a whole thing about how Lindy asks Megan a question about Congress. And then Megan explains it and we make a couple jokes, but, and, and then we recorded a pilot and then don't blame me. The KUOW higher ups were like, we liked that part at the beginning when you talked about your dogs for 10 minutes. And we were like, great. And they said, can you do that for a whole podcast? And we were like, yes, we don't want to do all this boring stuff. (laughs) And I don't know. And they keep letting us make it. I don't know. Every week they let us do it. (laughs) I wish I could remember the name of the condition that Megan's dog has. I want to hear about it on a regular basis. Well, can I tell you? Sure. It's called mega esophagus. Mega esophagus. (laughs) And it means that her esophagus is big and floppy and the food won't stay down. So they have to hand feed her tiny meatballs or else she'll aspirate her food and die. Um, And it turns out the thing that helps with mega esophagus is that they have to give Brenda Viagra every day. (laughs) So Lindy West, again, the, the, the podcast is text me back recommended. Um, we're here uh, to talk about 2023, and I just and I was asking you, what was 2023 to you? And you told me something that I think is very relatable to a lot of us because it's Seattle area is not just Seattle. So, what was your big development? Huge news! I uh, was born here. I grew up here. I lived here my whole life in King County. And in 2023, October 1st, I became a resident of Jefferson County. I moved to. Hood Canal, and I live in the woods, and that's my deal now. And I actually want to really quick acknowledge the elephant in the room, which is that when you live in the woods and you have to drive over two hours to get to work, um, you can't forget stuff because you can't go home. And I hopped in the car uh, wearing my Hamburglar Crocs <laughs> from it's um, their Crocs uh, that I bought as a joke. They're a collaboration between Crocs and McDonald's, and they are themed like the Hamburglar, which is a extended McDonald's universe character who steals hamburgers and then is gets locked up by the McDonald's cop, who is named Officer Big Mac, by the way, and. Um, <laughs> Yeah, then I drove all the way to Seattle, and these are the only shoes I brought. So (laughs) I realized I forgot. (laughs) So that's my life now. I'm like a country woman who, um, yeah, I'm just just a visitor here. I'm like a country mouse. I don't know what's going on. (laughs) I got my Hamburglar Crocs. Beyond the fact that I think McDonald's, would you say McDonald's, right? Yes. Founded by someone named Croc, I believe. What? Yeah. 
Oh, oh yeah, Ray Kroc. So I did know that. Yeah, synergy. But why... <laughs> Lindy West, why Jefferson County, Washington? So my family, my parents bought a log cabin in, it's not, there's no town. Closest town is Quilcene, uh, which is not a town, um, but it's... You say Dose Wallops River or Dosey Wallops? Dosey Wallops. Yeah, me too. Um, do, yeah, so we're 40 minutes from the Dosey Wallops. You know, we're, we're out there. And my parents bought this log cabin. It was built by an old hermit named old man donald he (laughs) built it himself with trees on the property no one knows how he did it uh and my parents bought this place in the early 80s so i grew up going out there for you know summer vacation and then my mom just needs help taking care of it now and so my husband and i were always in trouble because we could never go out there enough and you know clean the gutters and do all the stuff that needs to be done and then seattle um, broke. I, Seattle, I, <laughs> I've lived here again my whole life. Um, I do not own a home. And all of a sudden, my rent in White Center was $3,600 a month. And I was like, I can't, <laughs> you know, and I'm very successful. And I was yeah. like, <laughs> I can't, I'm 41 years old. I can't be like making rent, you know? And I, no TV shade to White show. Center. What? There's a TV show from your brain. Yes, I made a TV show. And it turns out that you're not rich for life when you make three seasons of a TV show. Okay. Um, and so I, uh, we mo- So basically, we, we realized that if we paid some rent to my mom, she would have some income. She would have, we would be out there full time to help maintain the property. And then we thought, let's try it. And we, so we did. And I, I'm never coming back. It is so nice. I love... Um, the most exciting thing that happens in my day is that, um, the neighbor calls me and says she saw bear poop in her field. You know, like I, um, I mean, who knows? I've only been there two months, so I shouldn't. (laughs) We'll see. But so far, so far, let me tell you, I came back to Seattle for this and (laughs) my mom lives, I'm staying with my mom. She lives near children's hospital took me one hour and 15 minutes to drive here from there. And I was like, mm, not, this would not happen in the woods. <laughs> so, I don't know. But, it, it, you know, not to get serious, but it's really scary and sad to feel, like, I feel a little bit driven out of my home, you know? Like, I really, we really couldn't afford it anymore. And... Uh, my husband's an artist and uh, our other partner is also an artist and it was like I know lots of artists who are moving to other you know who are moving to Tacoma who are moving to Everett it's just so hard to afford to live and um, I don't want to be stressed for the rest of my life or feel like I need to I don't know change careers and hustle harder or whatever. I want to enjoy my life. And I don't know. I I just, I wonder, I don't, this is anecdotal. I don't have numbers on it, but it feels like I wouldn't be surprised if there was a little bit of an artistic brain drain happening. Um, When I was working at The Stranger in 2005, 2006, I was, I started as the theater intern and I would compile the theater calendar and there were, you know, 40 small theaters that I, you know, and, and I don't, I, all my friends who, work in theater, I see them struggling to get funding, and like, it's so, I'm so happy to hear that um, there's so much funding coming up for the arts, but it's like scary and sad. I don't know. I love Seattle, but I love 
the woods more. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I have a question. Um, it's an artsy question, but you know, you're you're doing the podcast with your best friend. You recently just released the movie that you did with family and friends. Um, what is it like for you creatively to work with people that you're so close to? Is it like great because you love them, or is it like because eh, you love them? It's <laughs> it's great. Honestly, it's really great. I feel like I. I wouldn't work with everyone that I know, but um, the people that I've chosen to work with are uh, a dream. And it that's one of the other reasons we moved out there. We have space to host um, artists. We want to start having a little, maybe an artist residency program because we have a little guest house where people can come stay. And, you know, we're hoping to create a little community out there. And, and my husband, Aham, has a... Um, recording studio in a little, he, he converted this carport into a recording studio. So for example, my sister-in-law, Ijoma Oluo is coming out next week and she's going to record her audiobook in our little studio. And it, and it feels really, um, special and it feels like what you dream of a little artist community being. And, um, yeah, I feel really lucky to get to, to live and work, uh, and collaborate with all my favorite people. And I have just really, I know I said this at the beginning, I've been wanting to work with Megan for 20 years, and we're finally doing it. And I'm so, I, I have never enjoyed a job this much. Every day I'm like, are we, rec- are we recording today? Are we, wait, we're not? <laughs> like, I'm like, I don't get to work today? <laughs> it's, it's really special. So no complaints yet. We'll see. Again, uh, maybe it'll crash and burn. Like moving to the cabin, we've only been doing it for like two months, so... <laughs> Uh, I, I, I'm imagining you and, and Aham and, and your artist collective in the woods of Jefferson County and the rural stereotype, perhaps a TV plot, would have the, them not taking kindly to your shrill, liberal, big city ways. Is your next book going to be called How the Salt of the Earth Bumpkins Reacted <laughs> to Our Landing in Their Midst? You know... They're so nice. Everyone's so nice. And, uh, well, most everyone is nice. I'm not going to name names, but um, it's, we did put up a Black Lives Matter sign at the end of the driveway, and then a tree fell on it. And (laughs) Aham was like, did, who pushed over the tree? Like, you know, we're, you're always a little bit on edge. Like, hmm. Well, but, pushing over a tree onto a sign is a, is a hard way to go about it. Yeah. I'm going to go with probably the wind. But, um, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely when we go to, for instance, Chimicum slash Hadlock uh, and go into a bar, there's for sure a record scratch. <laughs> um, and... But it's fine. Everyone's really nice. I, we don't we don't talk politics with the the. Well, I don't want to say townies because th- we are them now. Um, but like all we know, all of our neighbors, we've known them for years because we've been going out there for thirty years, forty years, I guess. I'm forty. I'm forty one. Um, and it's it's just a sweet little community. I don't know. I the other day I had a big adventure, which is that I found entrails in the bushes. I know. Entrails. Well, my. 
My dog found them. It was like a big pile of guts in the bushes. My dog went missing, and I was like, where's Barry? And then, of course, I found him with the guts. And I was like, oh, my God. And then it was just great. I was able to text like a neighbor that I know who does a lot of caretaking for different properties. And he was like, I'll be right over. And then he went and investigated the guts. And then we were texting about, because it was so weird. It was clearly deer innards, but there was nothing else. Like someone had taken the rest of the deer. So we were like, would a cougar just pull out the guts, but then like drag the rest of it up into a tree? So exciting. Um, And then literally, this is, this sounds crazy, but the best explanation we came up with was that Someone on a boat <laughs> saw a deer from the water and shot the deer on the land and then jumped off the boat. Because it's, you can't, no one's passing by. We're, it's, it's a dead end it, at the end of a peninsula. Like, we are remote. So it was like someone, in a, someone was poaching from a boat, <laughs> ran up onto the land and dressed the deer and left the guts and ran back on the boat with the deer carcass. You, you, you cannot glance over saying that you identified the animal by the innards. Is that well, a thing that you can do now? <laughs> okay, I posted it on Instagram, and I was like, what are people's theories? Where do these guts come from? Multiple people were like, those look human. <laughs> How dare you? Um, but I don't know. Well, because Joe, my neighbor you know, hunts and lives in the woods. And so he was like, yeah, that's deer. I don't know. I don't know what different animals' guts look like. Uh, Lindy West, uh, I'm really adoring. Text me back, and I adore you, and thank you for coming all the way out from Quilson-ish. My pleasure. Thank you so much. You know, if I just told somebody, well, what's KOW? And I said it was, uh, it's, a, it's an information source. It's, it's a, you know, it's a vital organ of democracy. It's like a utility. It, they would, it would be true, but it would not um, convey to them why people would come out here. Like, you know this is going to be on the radio tomorrow, right? <laughs> but, but we just, we, we, are, we came together. We did it again, and I love it, and I love you all, and thank you for being here. Thank you to Lindy West and all of our guests, sports writer Art Teal. The leader of the Wing Luke Museum, Joel Baraki Altan. Thank you to your reporting team and editing team, KUOW's Mike Davis, Monica Nicholsberg, and Kat Smith. Thanks. I'm Bill Radke. I want to thank our producer, Kevin Kniestet, our events producer, Daphne Liu, for putting tonight's show together, our KUOW live events team. A big thank you to Seattle Center's Cornish Playhouse. Yeah for hosting us here tonight and our KUOW live events sponsor. Way to go, Finney Ridge Painting. I'm Bill Radke. Let's stay together, and I'll see you again in 2024.